Uh, this morning, we're going to be starting in Matthew chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull that out. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to use a physical Bible, we've got Bibles in the pews in front of you, just underneath. Uh, you might need to look a little bit to your left or to your right, but there should be a Bible underneath there. If you don't have a personal Bible, uh, the Bible that's underneath the pew is now yours. Um, that is our gift to you. You can take that home, write in it, keep it, do whatever you would like to do with that. Um, we want to make sure that people can have access to a Bible if they would like to. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. And I think this is, well, let's just read it and we'll go from there. I'm going to be in Matthew 21. I'm going to start in verse 18. All right. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18 says, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, and he found nothing on it except for leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Why in the world did Jesus wither that tree? <laughs> right? Have you guys ever thought about this story? Like, it's a, it's a really weird story. Like, Jesus is walking along, says he's hungry. He's like, I'm kind of hungry. Oh, look, there's a fig tree. I'll just go off the side of the road. Oh, there's no, there's no fruit on it. And curse you. And then it withers up, right? Like, was Jesus just really hangry, like I get? Um, but, like, it's, it's even in, more interesting because this is recorded in uh, Mark and Luke. It's our at least in Mark, and it's mentioned in other Gospels. And so um, some of the other details that it's added in the other Gospel is that it was not the season for figs. Like, he's going up to a tree, and it's like, it's like if I told you to go up to like an apple tree right now, right? You're not going to find any apples. And so, like, and so Jesus is going up to this fig tree, and his disciples are like, Jesus, what did you think you were going to find? Like... Like, you're not going to find any figs because it's too early in the season. And, and when we talk about this passage, we usually kind of go right along with the disciples because the disciples ask this question in the very next verse. Uh, when the disciples saw this, they were amazed, and they said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? They ask a how question instead of a why question. Right? Like, they've, like, been seeing Jesus, like, you know, feed 5,000 people, like, walk on water. And they're still kind of curious as to how he's doing things. And I'm like, why didn't they ask this? The, the really obvious question to me is, why did he do that? Why in the world would Jesus go up to a perfectly normal tree early in season and wither it? What's, what's Jesus going on? And, and, and most times passages or sermons on this passage will go on to the next thing and talk about faith and talk about mountains being thrown into oceans and things like that. And that's an all good point, but it's not, I think, the main point or the reason why Jesus withered a perfectly normal and healthy tree. 
So I think there's some context that we're missing. I'm going to jump into the Old Testament to answer this question a little bit. If we were to go back into the minor prophets, into Hosea, Hosea chapter 9, I'm going to go to Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. This short verse says this, it says, when I found Israel, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. But when they came to Baal, Prayer, they were consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. So this is God, or this is uh, Hosea, and he's pronouncing a word of the Lord. And he's saying, when I found Israel, they were, they were fresh. They were like ripe fruit on a tree. They were like finding, like when you come up to a tree and you're like, it's a little early in the season, but oh, look, here's the first fruits from that tree. Something to be treasured, excited, coming up to a fig tree and finding those early fruits there. And God is saying, that's how Israel was, but that is not how they are now. They've consecrated themselves to an idol. And so if we take that as just maybe a small piece of context to Jesus coming up to a fig tree, perhaps wondering if he would find any early fruits, we begin to see a little bit more of a bigger picture start to come to light. The day before withering the tree, Jesus was welcomed into the city with in, into the city of Jerusalem with palm branches, right? Like people had taken leaves off of a tree and he, they had welcomed him in. And this is kind of, I mean, this there's obviously there's palm branches here, um, right? It's Palm Sunday, um, and so there's this whole context to what Jesus did the day before. And I think that what Jesus is doing is he's making a commentary. He's saying, look, you guys are missing the picture. The point is not how I withered the fig tree. The point is I'm withering the fig tree to show what I think of what I found in Jerusalem the past day. And if we were to go to Mark, Mark even breaks the story up a little bit to make the point even clearer. See, Jesus came looking for fruit among the branches, and he found none. Right? Jesus came, and he looked among the branches of his people, and the leaves, and he came into Jerusalem, and he found no fruit. And so the next day, he comes up, and he performs a living parable in front of his disciples. He says, just like I came into Jerusalem surrounded by branches and coming in and looking for fruit, I found none, so do I go up to this tree, part the leaves, and find that is lacking fruit. And there is judgment upon that. Today, we are that crowd. Today, we sit here. In its own sort of recreating of that. We have palm branches around here. Right? We are re-participating We are re-participating in that moment in Christ's ministry in the redemption narrative. Right? There is this thing called the church calendar. Maybe 
Um, maybe some of you are familiar with it if you maybe grew up in, if you maybe attended Catholic Mass at some point or a more high church. Um, but we're all generally familiar with one or two days out of the church calendar, usually Easter and Christmas. But the church calendar actually has a number of other days. Cameron was just up here and he was talking about Good Friday. That was one of those days. Um, if you came to our uh, Ash Wednesday service 40-odd days ago, right? that was another day out of the uh, church calendar. When we do Advent, right? we always use that word here at Conduit when we're talking about Christmas. We're saying we're in the Advent season. That's a season not from Hallmark or some other calendar. It's out of the church calendar. The church historically has taken the whole year and broken up the story of Christ's life and ministry and placed it onto a calendar. And so that the church for many, 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 many years, and many churches still do today, is they practice that calendar as a way of what is it that we should be teaching on? What is it we should be remembering as a way of rehearsing and practicing and showing the gospel in a very just ordinary way to all who would participate in the life of the church? And so today is similar. It's we're, we're remembering this particular day, Palm Sunday, and we put palms out to remind ourselves of this. We are participating and remembering what Christ did and carrying ourselves through that narrative of redemption. And so the question that I have to ask is if we sit in here today, if we place ourselves as the crowd with these palm branches here, if Jesus were to come in here today looking among today's palm branches, what would he find? If Jesus was welcomed in by a crowd 2,000 years ago, with people who had laid branches onto the ground for him to walk over, we've done similarly. What would Jesus come in and find among you and me? Would he find fruit? Or would he come and say, hmm, I'm finding something is missing. I'm seeing the appearance of healthy tree, but... Beneath the leaves, I'm finding the lack of fruit. And so today, that is my question. And I want us to look at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and I want us to examine what it is that Jesus found amongst the crowd then, and then what does that teach to us, the crowd, today? So let's, um, let's back up a little bit. And we'll just kind of talk about some of the context, right? So Jesus has been going about and he's been doing his ministry. And as he's been doing it, he's been performing miracles and he's going from place to place. And as he's been slowly making his way to Jerusalem, because Passover is coming. It's like us, we're celebrating Easter, Palm Sunday, right? We've got all of these things. Jewish people celebrating Passover, even still to this day, still celebrating that holiday. And Passover is coming. And everybody would make it to Jerusalem, the holy city, the place of the temple, the place of worship for this particular week, for this holiday, for this celebration. And Jesus is part of that crowd of people making his way there. And Jesus is making and doing some some uh, miracles. And as he's doing that, he's gathering more and more people who are kind of on the road too and saying, oh, this is... 
This is the Jesus guy that everybody's been talking about. And they, they're kind of like seeing him heal two blind men. And they're, and they're like, oh, this guy's like, and they're following along with him. So he's kind of meeting and gathering this crowd with him as he's tra- traveling to Jerusalem. And then we get to this day, and he's going to kind of travel into Jerusalem. And now I want to show you a map. And if you know me, um, I love maps. I think the best books in the world start with maps in the beginning. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. Um, But I love maps. And so this was just a helpful image for me because sometimes we tell these stories and we forget this is an actual place. There's actual geography and topography going on. So I know it might be a little bit hard to see because it's kind of a busy picture. But you've got off to the left there, Jerusalem. And then you've got over here on the right side of the image, you've got Jesus following this yellow road, this yellow line into Jerusalem. He's starting down in the corner at Bethany. That's where Lazarus was healed and brought back to life. And he's traveling to Bethage, as we will see here in a minute. And then he travels through Mount Olives and through all of these trees where probably the branches were picked and laid down. And that kind of is where those leaves came from. People just didn't carry leaves around with them. They went, they're like, there was trees to pluck them off of. And then even along that path, you see that it's very small, so you can't see it. But all those trees, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will be praying in less than a week, and he will be arrested. And so this is the path that Jesus is taking down into Jerusalem. And that's where our story picks up. So let's go to Matthew, uh, still in chapter 21, but we're going to go to the first verse of this chapter. Verse 1 of 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, specifically Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. So as Jesus is saying, he's like, all right, we're coming up. We're coming to the town of Bethphage. I want you to go forward there. I want you to get a small donkey, a small young colt of a donkey. I want you to bring it. I'm going to ride this. And the disciples, upon reflecting it, they're like, this is... This is from Zechariah. This is a, uh, a thing that we would remember. And so, behold, the Lord your God is coming on a donkey like a, like a king, coming into a, a conquering kingdom, but, um, but with peace. Right? So this would have been also just a cultural image as well. So Jesus uh, coming in on a donkey. We, don't, we think of donkeys. We don't... We don't think of donkeys as particularly special, right? They kind of get the short end of the stick. We call them, um, like, they're not, they're donkeys, right? Like, would you rather have a stallion 
or a donkey, right? Like, um, like, right? So it feels kind of strange that Jesus would come in on a donkey. And we're like, okay, well, we can kind of get behind. Okay, Jesus is feeling kind of humble. And yes, that's part of the picture. Jesus is coming in humbly. But it also would have been a symbol of peace, a symbol of things being right. If a king were to ride into a city, not on his war horse, but on a donkey, it would be a symbol that war is over, peace has come, things are all right. And so this is a a greater image that is in their minds. And so there's this fulfillment of a prophecy from hundreds of years ago. And then let's go into um, verse 7. Let's pick up from there. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So they put the cloaks on the donkey so that Jesus didn't have to ride bareback. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asking, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. There's a couple things to note in all of that. One, remember, this is the crowd. Where did this spontaneous crowd come from? This is the crowd that Jesus was probably gathering as he was traveling, as he was performing those miracles. And, and the other thing to notice is that they're, they're, they're singing out this phrasing here. In your Bible, it might set it aside and kind of show it as a quotation. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That passage is actually a quote from the Psalms. We could go to Psalm 118 and we would find it in that Psalm. And those group of Psalms, 118 and a few before and after it, are Psalms that would have been sung as you were going to Jerusalem for a holy day. They were Psalms of ascent. And so Psalm 118 might have even been the Psalm that the people were just singing and reciting to themselves and to their families and their friends as they're going to Jerusalem on this trip. And as they're doing it, they're like, oh, like, this is, this is part of it. This is important. This is Jesus. And for all of their worship and excitement and, and Hosanna specifically, if you were to turn to Psalm 118 and you're like, Luke, I don't see the word Hosanna there. Well, Hosanna is, a, is kind of a translation or it's a shortening of a phrase that shows up in Psalm, Psalm 118, which is, oh God, save us. And so Hosanna is kind of the shortening or the condensing of that word into, or that phrase into one word. That's what Hosanna means. It's come and save. It's a, it's a worshipful phrase that is simply saying, God, please come soon, save us and redeem us. And so they're singing this. And, and, and so as we're seeing this, we're like, oh, like, does the, does the crowd get it? it? Does the crowd realize that Jesus is God, that he's come to save them? Well, they, maybe not because verse 9 ends with they or not, yeah, verse 10, or 11, I can find it. Verse 11, right, the crowd tells Jerusalem, Jerusalem's like, 
Why are you guys all shouting? Why is everybody so excited about this guy on a donkey? And they're like, oh, he's a prophet. Oh, he's a prophet. He's not, not God. He's a prophet. So my question is, is, what is in the minds of the crowd? Who do they think that they're worshiping? What do they expect Jesus to be doing in Jerusalem once he's there? What is the significance of all of this? Well, like a little bit of history lesson here. Um, a little bit less than 100 years prior to this, Jerusalem, we talk, kind of talk, we've talked about a number of times, Cameron talked about last week, that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem in Israel, is currently under foreign occupation. They're under Roman rule. They're not their own self-governing. They're underneath rule of the Roman Empire, as like most of the world was at that point. And Pilate is, is kind of the governor of the city. And so there's this foreign ruler, and a little bit less than 100 years ago, there had actually been a revolt. Uh, the Jerusalem people, the Israelites, uh, with the Maccabeans, if you've ever heard of the Maccabees, this is the uh, tie to the celebration of Hanukkah. But the Maccabees revolted, not against the Romans, but the Greeks at that time. And they managed to succeed and overthrew the Greeks, and they had an independent state for a while. And actually about, like, like I said, a little bit, a little under 100 years ago, the rulers or the leaders of that revolt came on a donkey into Jerusalem and kicked out and removed the foreigners from Jerusalem. There was this coming into the city and removing all of the foreigners and the foreign rule and leading Israel into independence. And what I think, and what most people seem to think, is that that is maybe a little bit more of the picture that the, the crowd on that day had in mind. Perhaps this is the guy, he's going to come and he's going to come in and we're going we're to kick the Romans out. We're going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to be our own independent state and city and nation again. Because that's what had happened maybe a hundred years ago. But Jesus had something entirely different. The crowd was thinking that Jesus was this prophet. He was this person who was going to gather the people and we were finally going to overthrow the Romans. And that's not at all what Jesus was doing. And so, what does Jesus do? Because Jesus comes into the city, he's welcomed like this, and let's just see, what is he, where does he go? Does he go up to Pilate? Does he go on the town square and he start getting a crowd together? Let's see, he goes in verse 12, says that Jesus entered the temple courts, went straight to the temple, and he drove out, not the Romans, but all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests, the pastors, the religious people of the day, came and the teachers of the law saw, that the, saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, they're like, you should, you should silence them, right? Like, do you hear what they're saying about you? 
And Jesus says, yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany and where he spent the night. So that might be a familiar story, Jesus coming and cleaning out the temple. And there's some debate over exactly why Jesus, what, what, was, what was the thing that infuriated Jesus? There's some um, implication, implied thing that perhaps the people who were selling doves, they were selling sacrifices is what they were doing, selling animals to travelers who were coming to make sacrifices at the temple and say, well, here, like, you can get your sacrifice. You didn't have to maybe bring or catch a dove on your travels and bring it all the way with you. You can just buy an animal here. Is that they were perhaps maybe ripping them off, maybe exchanging money because they're from a different place and maybe not giving them the best exchange rate, um, all of that, right? So there could have been some deception going on. But if that, if there's no deception going on, there's at least Jesus is angry because of... The fact that they're using and conducting the business inside of the outer courts or the part of the courts where the Gentiles would have worshipped. So if someone wasn't born Jewish by ethnicity, but they believed in God and they wanted to come and worship, this would have been the place where they were allowed to worship. But they're not actually have any place to worship because all of a sudden it's just filled with money changers and business, and it's not a place of worship. It's a place of business all of a sudden. And so Jesus is at least infuriated about that, if not about potential um, deception and thievery going on inside of the church of God. He comes in, and he finds the temple not having any fruit of worship, no fruit of praise or knowing God and worshiping and placing him in highest of places. Jesus came into the temple and he found no fruit. Right? He's come in, he's looked behind the leaves, and he's found that there's no fruit here. Actually, there's something awful here. Jesus didn't go into the, like, he didn't go into the political space. He didn't go into town square. He didn't even go into the temple to start rabble-rousing. He went in to uh, call the people to pure and true worship of the Lord. He found people more concerned with what they wanted uh, than they were for God's will. More concerned about convenience, right? Well, it's just simpler if we put the money changers here. Right, put it somewhere else. Blah, blah, blah. Like, just do it here. Don't care. Like, we don't really care that much for the Gentiles, anyways. They don't really need a place to worship. Like, they're second class. Like, let's just do that. Like, convenience. Right, a little bit of prejudice, maybe. Just kind of what was convenient, and they just weren't prioritizing the worship of the Lord. More concerned with what they would rather and their comfort than for God's worship and for prayer. So Jesus, the next day, Jesus mirrors his actions in Jerusalem with his actions with the fig tree. 
So the fig tree, the place where we started, right, is where Jesus came and he saw that tree and it lacked any fruit. He's playing it out what he happened yesterday. It's a mirror. It's a parable. It's an analogy for what he experienced the day before in Jerusalem. Can you imagine if Jesus had done what maybe the crowd had expected? Have you ever thought about that? Like if Jesus actually hadn't come to die on the cross to redeem and save the world, but he had just actually come just to liberate Jerusalem, just to like free one state, to make an independent nation. That was all Jesus came to do because that's what they thought he had come to do. Could you imagine that? But he hadn't died on the cross. He had, he had come as a political deliverance, but he actually hadn't come to save the sin of the world and all those that would lost. Like, we wouldn't be here. Liberated Israel, right, as good as that would have been, is nothing compared to a world saved from sin. The people were looking for Jesus to build their kingdom, and Jesus was looking for people who wanted God's kingdom. Right? The people wanted Jesus to come and build up their own kingdom, their own sense of importance and place. And Jesus was coming, and he's like, look, you're thinking way too small. I'm looking for people who are concerned with God's kingdom. Not your own sense of what you think is important and how you want things to play out. I want people who are committed to my kingdom, to the way I'm building things. And he found people lacking. And that brings us, the question that we, right, if we're sitting in as the crowd, if we are here and saying, what does the crowd from Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago have to teach us? What question ought we be asking ourselves? And the question I think we need to ask ourselves is, how many of us have a vision for the life we want? And how many of us have a vision for the life Jesus is calling us to? How many of us are interested in building our own personal kingdom of a life that looks exactly the way I want it to? And how many of us are concerned with our life looking the way God wants it to, right? In, in my decision-making, in my picturing of the future, in the things that I'm prioritizing and putting my effort and my love towards, is that just what I want? Or am I asking God, God, what do you want for my life? Am I interested in God's kingdom more than I'm interested in my kingdom? I want to read for us a short quote here. I have an image here. Go ahead and put that, that next image. Um, this is from C.S. Lewis. He is a Christian writer, thinker, Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read that. And this is from his book, Mere Christianity. And he, he poses this thought. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. You're like, okay, 
Makes sense. I'm cool with that. Right? But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is, is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Right? So if we... Let's stick with that one metaphor for a moment. You're a house, right? There's some handyman jobs that need done on that house, right? Oh, yeah. And we need a facelift to the kitchen, right? Like, we're putting some new tile here, right? The bathroom, master bathroom needs an overhaul, right? We could, we could use with, we could use with a double vanity, right? Not just one, right? There's some things that, okay, Jesus, you can come in and fix that. That's fine. Come in, can make my life that way, that's comfortable. But then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, oh look, maybe, no, we're not just going to put flooring over this. We're not just going to put vinyl down. We're going to get up to the subfloor. We're going to start moving joists around. We're going to start adjusting things. We're going to put on a whole new wing. And we're like, this is, this is way more costly and inconvenient than I initially thought it was going to be, Jesus. I thought it was going to take one month to do the kitchen. And now you're doing like this huge, giant addition onto my house. The amount of people in this room who are resonating with this. Um, right? But we, we want Jesus to come into our life, and we want him to make our house, to make our life, to make our interior soul look a way that we feel comfortable with. But the thing is, is Jesus doesn't care what you're comfortable with. He's not interested in what you want. He's saying, no, no, no. I got something better. I got something bigger. The people on that day, on Palm Sunday, all those years ago, didn't understand. They wanted Jesus to come in and they maybe saw small pictures. Maybe this is the Messiah. And maybe he's going to bring us like political victory and he's going to overthrow the Romans. They had no idea that the whole plan was to die on a cross and redeem the entire world from sin and death and darkness and to rise again on the third day to bring about a new era for the whole world. They had no idea. They had this small little picture. They wanted, oh, Jesus is going to build this nice little cottage. And Jesus is like, uh-uh. I got something way bigger I'm going to do. And so the question is for us, as we sit here, is are we falling in line with what Jesus wants to do in our lives? Or are we a little bit resistant, right? Jesus wants to work over here. Jesus, I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to work. I don't want to focus on that. That that's uncomfortable. That costs a lot. That's a big sacrifice. Jesus, can't we just like, can't you just make other people in my life just a little bit less annoying? <laughs> right? That's what we want. 
is we want Jesus to come in and just kind of like make life a little bit smoother. Like, yeah, Jesus, can't you just smooth some things over? Like, just answer like my top five prayers. Like, and just do that. That's all I want. And Jesus is like, mm-mm. Like, see, there's some things underneath those things that we need to get to. We need to do some digging. We're going to go backwards. We're going to, maybe we're going to do some things that maybe you don't want to do, but I know that you need. And we, right, we put up walls, blinders, plug our ears, anything. Jesus, I don't want that. Just stay over here. Stay, stay in your little box that I'm putting you in. Don't go anywhere else. That's what we're trying. How often do we do that? And say, Jesus, just you can have this piece. Stay there. Calm down now. Right? And Jesus is like, mm. see, that's the thing. That's the thing is that God's grace is that he doesn't listen to us. Right? The grace of Jesus is that he doesn't accept our small vision for our life, he's like, no, I'm going to do something else whether you want me to or not. Right? I'm going to bring about some like hard things. I know you don't want them, but I'm doing something in them. Right? Jesus, the grace of Jesus is that he does not listen to you. That you do not dictate the things that he does in your life. And I know... Because this is most people's stories, right? We all kind of grow up and we think, oh, we're going to go from point A, point B, maybe to point C, and it's going to be real smooth. It's going to be real great. It's going to be this like onward, and we're going to get up to this like, you know, mountaintop. And that's exactly the way my life's going to play out. Well, most of us went from point A to point L to point Q, and it was ugly, right? Like, like, if your life has played out anything, like, even, like, I don't know, like, but chances are that your life has not played out exactly the way you wanted it to, right? Maybe, uh, you know, maybe that, like, that event didn't happen when you really wanted it to, right? Like, um, maybe you, I like for myself, like, I didn't plan to be 32 when I got married, when I was younger, I was like, oh, I'll get married real young. That didn't happen. And for a long time, it was a point of contention. I was like, God, why, why is it that I can't seem to find anyone? I was really, it's not, I was pretty angry there for a while. Because that was not how I wanted things to play out. Right? When I graduated from college and then I was serving at a small church plant in Chicago, I had vision this church plant's going to grow. It's going to be this next awesome movement of God in Chicago and in Westtown and Ukrainian Village. It's going to become the know the Lord and it's going to be awesome. And then it petered out and closed at the end of 2020. Wasn't the way I planned that to work out. Wasn't what I wanted. Wasn't what I was picturing. But what God has wrought in my life through what has seemingly been detours or divergence from my plan or the way that I think should work out has been the best things that have been in my life.
So the questions we need to wrestle with is what work are you trying to hold Jesus back from doing in your life? What work is Jesus trying to do, but you're saying, mm, I don't, Jesus, I don't want you to touch that. I don't want you to touch my finances. I don't want you to touch that relationship. I don't want to deal with my past. Can we just deal with this? What is Jesus trying to do in your life that we are putting up resistance to? Mm, Jesus, not that. That makes me uncomfortable. It's not the thing I like. What is Jesus trying to do in your life? I think, like I was thinking about this, and I have to, like, some reflection, like what is it that the Lord is doing in my life that I'm maybe not paying attention to, or I maybe don't want to pay attention to? And in pretty general terms, I think the Lord is calling me into a season of, like, consistent, quiet dependence, right? And, like, I, for me, like, I'm, I'm the guy, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I wake up in the morning, I open my phone, I'm on Instagram, I'm on social media, I'm on YouTube, I'm looking for the next funny cat video, right? I'm just like, oh, this is, right? And, and I think, I, I have a tendency to just go from interesting thing to interesting thing to interesting thing. And I have a tendency to want to do things in my own strength. Say, oh, I got this. I can do that. I can figure that out on my own. Ah, I've done that enough times. I can kind of do that without any dependence or reliance upon the Lord. And in the place where I feel like the Lord is calling me into, and what I feel is just that he is calling me into a place like, Luke, you need to sit in some silence. You need to sit with me a lot and maybe drop some distractions out of your life. Because the place... What's next for you in your heart and what I'm doing in your life is going to require that. It's what I just personally feel for myself. So I'm sharing that with you as an example. I don't know what that is for you. But you probably know. My guess is, is that the Holy Spirit's maybe poking at it right now. Maybe he's been poking at it this service. Where is the place where you don't want to go? Because what we often run up into, not just in life, but in the spiritual life, is we kind of run up into these walls, right? These places where we feel like, why, is, why have I stagnated? Why am I stuck? Why does life keep going in this pattern that is not helpful for me? And the reason often is, is because we've come to a wall there's some real difficult thing in front of us. Maybe some suffering, maybe some healing of some trauma, maybe some difficult choices, maybe a surrendering of something. And what we're doing, we're coming to this wall, and we're trying to find some way to get around the wall, trying to dig underneath of it, trying to climb over it. And the thing is, is that the only way through the wall is through it and not around it. If you're 
thinking of this thing. There isn't a way around it. The Lord has said, like, to go forward is to go through this. And you don't have to go through it alone. You have a community. You have the Holy Spirit. You have Christ walking alongside you. God will not abandon you to that, but he will call you through it. And that's a place where I feel like a lot of people get stuck. We spend our whole lives trying to figure out a way to avoid something, some hard thing. And what that does is it ends up just stunting our growth, and we end up just kind of walking around in circles and kind of backtracking, maybe coming close to the wall, but then we get scared and we come back away. Christ is calling you through it. And when we push through that is where growth it's where Christ is calling you. That's where the building and the growth that he's wanting to do in your life is to be found. I know that sounds scary. You don't have to do it all at once. Not, but asking the Lord, what is it that you're calling to me to? What is it that you're trying to do in my life? Not what do I want you to do in my life. What are you doing in my life already? Where is your work happening? So I want to encourage us to pray these two things this coming week. This week is Holy Week, coming up to Easter. I would encourage you to sit with these over this week. And this prayer is simple. It's saying, ask the Lord, where are you working in my life? Where, where are you currently doing something? Where is the Holy Spirit pointing to right now? And then, how can I surrender more fully to your will? Those, those two questions. Can we meditate on those as a community this week? Can we talk about them in our, in our groups as we meet up with people, as we have coffee with one another? Can we say, what do you feel like the Lord is working? Where is he working in your life? Where is his presence? Where is his desire for you? And then how can we each surrender more fully to his will? How can we stop fighting and putting up a resistance? How can we be people who want to bear that fruit that God wants to grow in our life? Those are the two questions I think we should sit with this week as we meditate and as we go towards Easter to the celebration of the gospel in our lives. And maybe even let that be a reflection and a place of, of prayer as we celebrate communion today. I'm going to invite Pastor Cameron to come up here, and he's going to uh, introduce and uh, begin the administration of communion. So, so I want to I start by saying that if you have um, much familiarity with conduit, you, um, you may feel or know that or you may get the sense that we we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of uh, what what some people would call like traditional expressions or celebrations of the church. For instance, if you grew up in a if you grew up in a Catholic church or you grew up even in a Methodist church or really an Episcopal church or anything like that, you might have your your worshiping experiences might look a little bit different than they they look here at Conduit, and some people some people really like that and in, and enjoy what is considered or sometimes described as the informal nature of 
how we worship and celebrate together. Others of you might might have times or experiences where you are like, well, I there's parts of me that really miss the the depth and the richness to what um, what what is called liturgy is in a worship service. That would be things like um, you know when we come forward to the communion table. You know that there's a kind of an order of worship that's celebrated each time, or there might even be some call and response, some communal prayers that we all uh, that we all pray together in preparation for. Um, things like communion or during a baptismal service or something like that. And you might think that, well, at Conduit, our pastors and our leaders, they don't like any of that kind of like really high church stuff. And so that's why we just kind of fly by the seat of our pants all the time and just willy-nilly anything. And uh, while it may um, seem like that and feel like that sometimes, I want you to know that that's actually not our heart at all. And um, that I believe... Uh, Pastor Luke believes as well that there that there is incredible depth and richness into the um, into the, for lack of a better term, formulaic ways that we celebrate the faith, that we celebrate communion, that we even use things um, like, for instance, uh, the saying of the Lord's prayer together or a communal prayer or the proclamation of the whole like communion liturgy, that is a um, recounting all the time of the gospel story. Meaning it's a, it's a way that we tell the gospel amongst ourselves um, every time we come to the communion table. And while, um, and while I don't feel like God is calling us as a church to, um, you know, listen, I'm not going to be, you're not going to, catch me wearing a robe or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, there, uh, I, there's, I don't feel like God is calling us as a church to, um, to, to transition towards more of like a highly liturgical service or celebration or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. The conduit that you know and love will always be the conduit you know and love, I think. But I do think that there, uh, maybe we're entering into a season where God is calling us to maybe um, reinvigorate and rediscover the richness and the depth to some of the traditions of the Christian church throughout history that can bring meaning into our celebration of things like communion and baptism and things like that. And so um, we will, I, I do want to begin to um, uh, reintroduce aspects of what you might be familiar with from churches growing up or churches that you've come from in the past that would sound like, look like, feel like, and actually would be like more um, uh, a traditional communion service. My, my hope is that I can, we can hear the Lord and to, to do it in a way that remains meaningful for us, but that it would also give meaning to us. Not that we would give meaning to it, but that it would give meaning to us in the way that we um, celebrate together. Uh, the gift of uh, Christ's broken body and the gift of Christ's shed blood. And so if you would be willing to follow me as I kind of lead us on this journey over the next, you know, several months as we maybe, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to say experiment. That's not the right word, 
But as we, as we begin to reintroduce into our worshiping life together more aspects that um, seem a little bit like more um, structured than you're maybe used to at Conduit, uh, I am believing and trusting that the Lord is going to bring meaning to our congregation and to our, communi- or to our community um, to that. Um, so if you're, if you're willing to trust me in that leadership, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm saying that I, I think that the Lord is going to bring blessing and meaning uh, to our celebration with that. So we're going to kind of, so as to not just throw you in an ice cold pond, right? Um, we'll, we'll be kind of slowly introducing some of these aspects of worship into our regular life together. And we hope that they are um, a blessing to you and a blessing to all of us as we celebrate. One of the ways in, that, in which we're going to do that is in the celebration of communion. Christ our Lord invites to His table all who love Him, who earnestly repent of their sin and, and who seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, as one community of faith, let us in these moments confess our sin before God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Merciful God, Lord, we confess that we have not always loved You with our whole heart. We have failed to be obedient to the life and the calling of Jesus. Lord, we have not always done Your will. We have at times broken Your law. We have rebelled against Your love. We have not loved our neighbors. Lord, we are asking this morning for Your forgiveness. That You would free us from our sin for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news this morning. Jesus Christ died for you and I when we were still sinners. This demonstrates God's tremendous love towards us. In the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, all those who confess sin before Him are forgiven. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He met with those who were His disciples in the upper room for a meal. And at that meal, he took a loaf of bread. And after giving thanks to his father for that bread, he broke it. And then he gave the bread to his disciples and said, take and eat of this, all of you. This is my body, which has been broken for you. Likewise, Jesus took the cup. And he gave thanks to his heavenly Father for the cup. And after he shared it with his disciples, saying, this is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit 
both on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us, Lord, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by His love. By Your Spirit, Lord, make us one with Jesus, one with one another, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at His heavenly banquet. Through Your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and Your Holy Church, all honor and glory is Yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Would you join me uh, in praying the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you are new to Conduit, uh, we invite you this morning to join us in the participation of the Gospel story. In taking by faith what the symbols that Christ has offered to us in the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood. Uh, you don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be a member of any church to participate with us in communion this morning. You need only to express faith in the gift of God that has been offered to you and to us in the body of Jesus Christ and the shedding of His blood for the forgiveness of your sins. We take communion here at Conduit uh, through a method called intinction, which means you just rip off a piece of the bread, you can dip it in the cup, and you can take communion um, at that time. Uh, you also, uh, we also invite you to um, stay up here at the kneeling, uh, the prayer kneelers, if you would like to spend some time up here uh, in prayer, and then we'll uh, we'll continue in worship after that. So I'm gonna invite Pastor Luke to come forward and can I have that please thanks um, help me serve and then we'll invite you all up as well you know we, we also have this really crazy belief that Jesus offers his broken body and his shed blood um, and the forgiveness of sins um, to the littlest members of our community here believing that it's not you know we don't come forward in communion because we have an intellectual understanding of all the theological intricacies tied up in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we come forward in, in a spirit and a posture of faith, knowing that, that the gift of God in Jesus Christ is for everyone from birth to death, and that the celebration of that and the taking of that is something that we may progressively begin or progressively understand as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. Suffice it to say, if you would like your kids to celebrate communion with you, you're more than welcome to go get them and bring them back here into the sanctuary with us. Pastor Luke, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, broken and shed for the forgiveness of your sins. God is present in your life, that Jesus has come near to save you, to redeem you, 
to be in your life and see transformation where you go. As you go and you pray those prayers this week, as you're seeking what the Lord is doing, I pray that the Holy Spirit would press upon you and strengthen you where he is calling you. Conduit, know that you are loved and go in peace.